Thanks, Vicky. Well, Hans asked me to speak uh, on Isaiah chapter 6. I understand you're working through that book. And as I read the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, I thought, it's kind of about a, a close encounter, really, which made me think about, uh, I kind of like um, science fiction movies where people, you know, people meet the aliens. Uh, not, no, I don't mean friendly ones like that. I mean, is anyone, is anyone going to fess up to having seen... Um, Alien, the movie, yeah, yeah, okay. If you want to be scared witless, go back and watch the first of the Alien, Ridley Scott, that's it, Ridley Scott's first Alien movie. Because what happens finally, by the end of the movie, she get, Sigourney Weaver gets to meet this thing, right? and it is very scary. Um, and she's scared witless and why? It's, it's the close encounter, you're afraid what? Well, this thing's going to eat you, I guess, it, that's pretty scary. But here's what's interesting. In the Bible, whenever people have a close encounter with God, like a vision of God, and particularly here with Isaiah, they're afraid. But they're afraid for a different reason. It's not afraid that God's going to eat you or whatever. It, it's not a physical fear. It, it's a fear for a different reason. Now let's have a look at this and see, would you be afraid if you met or had a close encounter with God? Now, if you've been here the last what, couple of weeks in Isaiah, one week, okay, um, or just to get you up to speed, Isaiah was a prophet in, um, in the southern part of Israel, in Judah and around Jerusalem, uh, around 740 BC, kind of that middle of the 700s BC. And he tells us in the beginning that he was um, a prophet through the life or the reign of four different kings in Judah. Um, but in chapter 6, he actually kind of gives you a flashback and tells you how he got the job of being a prophet. Um, so ha let's have a look. Now, if you've got a Bible there, it would be a great help. Let, let me just walk you through chapter 6. So chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah is explaining how is it that he became a prophet. We're told, in the year that King Uzziah died, so the, the king of Judah has died, and then Isaiah has a vision of the real king or, or the king of kings, as he's called. And Isaiah paints a picture of, of what, or, or rather who, he saw. So here we are, chapter 6, verse 1. We're told, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now it is interesting, Isaiah doesn't describe the face of God, because I suspect he can't even he can't even look at the face of God. But what does he tell us? Well, uh, he's in the great temple that Solomon had built two hundred years earlier, and this great impressive temple. Well, um, the train of God's robe, you know, the end of his robes actually fills that temple. And what's he shown? Well, God's bigger than any building that you can build, no matter how much you spend on it. God's bigger than any statue that you can make. I couldn't help but think as I, as I thought about this passage this, this week, if you're a Christian person, and we, we may not all be followers of Jesus, and if you're, not, if you're not there yet following him, it's great that you're here, but I can't help but think for all of the anxieties that we carry around uh, and the worries about the future, and, and by definition worry is always about the future, or worrying about what other people think or what other people will do, if you have a big, big view of God, 
those things begin to just shrink down. So the bigger your vision of God, the more other things kind of shrink into the right perspective. So what does he say there? Look at verse 2. Above him, above, above, as God sat above the temple, uh, above him was seraphim. Now, who knows exactly what they... The word actually means the flames or the flaming ones, like the ones on fire. Uh, these are creatures that are in the throne room of God. What do they look like? Verse 2. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces... With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. Uh, they actually cover their faces because even they are not to look onto the face of God. And what are they calling? Verse 3, and they're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you see in verse 3, where Lord is written in all capitals, that's the personal name of the God of Israel. It, it may be pronounced Yahweh, but he's saying there, he's saying that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his, uh, the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, isn't it interesting? What they're pointing to is not just raw power, okay, but it's saying the holiness of God, that God is, well, actually, Jess described it really well. You know, God is separate, different, pure, perfect it's the character of God that's on that's on view there and how much through repeated three times and then you notice the other the whole earth is full of his glory meaning what they point to the glory of God in creation um as Hans just pointed out I, I just spent 10 days up at Cape York like the pointy end of Queensland and once you get out of the city you can actually see the stars. You know, on a good day, we can see three, you know, a good night, we can see three stars here. There is like a billion of them in the Milky Way and the other, and you, you can't help but look at that and think, wow, God's, God's made that. Or, or if you see a sunrise, wow. Or I've just been watching a four-month-old baby kind of grow up from, you know, kind of little vegetable and turn into a little girl who we wish would sleep, but, but you, you kind of think this little, she's going to become a little, a little person and then a big person and then, yeah, uh, the glory of God just points. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if we miss the glory of God in creation because we spend too much time looking at a screen the size of our, the palm of our hand rather than eyes open and looking around. Maybe that's just me. Okay, so we say verse 4, the, as the seraphim, the flaming ones, speak, uh, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. All stuff that kind of, in the Bible again and again, points to the presence of God. All right, now, here's something that, to wrap your head around. In John's Gospel, when, when John writes and he quotes this part of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 6, look at what he says. So he quotes... Um, where we go? We got, yep, well done, Ben. Um, he quotes here about um, hardening people's hearts and minds, etc. We'll come back to that in a second. But look at what he says in chapter six, verse sorry, chapter twelve, verse forty-one. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. He's saying, if you if you want to understand, here is what Isaiah saw or who Isaiah saw, 
is God or, or God the Son. And it's this one that has this vision of who's born in a stable in Bethlehem. Now, I kind of run out of... You get to that point and I run out of words to say, but if you want to think big thoughts, wrap your head around that. All right, so... Um, but Isaiah sees this vision of God and then he's what? He's afraid. Because you see that verse 5, he says, what, his immediate reaction, woe to me, I cry. Um, the woe thing, it just means, well, this is not going to end well, is what he thinks. Why? He says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, here's the thing, we go back, you know, if you go back to the, the, the silly science fiction movie and she meets the big monster and it's going to eat her and she's afraid, yeah, she's physically afraid. That's not why Isaiah is afraid. I'll tell you why. Because again and again, when, when you come into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, you can't help but look inside and see the evil and sin that's inside us, inside me and inside you. Um, it, you can't help but, but feel that in the presence of God and think, oh, no. Um, you know, it's it kind of like... It's more than awkward. It's not like you turn up at a black tie event and you're wearing old grubby clothes. It's not that kind of... It's really the... You say, oh, no. You see it in the New Testament in a strange... In what's kind of a strange place. Uh, you know the story about when... Um, Peter and, and, the, uh, and the other fishermen, they're, they're fishing, Jesus borrows their boat, he preaches a sermon and then he says, you know, go out and throw the nets out that side and Peter says, oh, Lord, you know, we fished all night, we caught nothing, you're a carpenter, I'm a fisherman, you know, and he says, all right. And then they, they have so many fish that the net's breaking. Peter's reaction is not what you expect. We're told in Luke 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at his knees, sorry, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, said what? Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. As soon as Peter realised who, who, begins to realise who this is, he's aware of his own sin in his life. Now, Isaiah says, I'm, I'm a sinful man, you know, me and the people I live among, the first five chapters of Isaiah, um, Isaiah or God through Isaiah, just listed the nasty mess that's in Jerusalem. You know, God is not complaining, oh, you guys turn up for church late. Uh, there's idolatry, and when you read idolatry in the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's following the fertility gods, and there's all sorts of things, like they're sacrificing babies in the name of fertility. Um, and then there's arrogance and pride and the, the rich exploit the poor. Chapter 3, verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? Or we'll come back in chapter 10 and talk about making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. So it, it, God's angry, yes, but it's not about you know, the time you turn up for church. It's people, the rich crushing the poor and the way they're treated. And the, but why, why lips? You see verse 5, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among um, people of unclean lips. You think, talk's cheap, isn't it? You know what, really, blah, 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 all the time. Why does that... I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says it's not that talk is cheap. Talk is the overflow of our hearts. Now, Jesus says in um, Matthew chapter 12, 
Um, and, and this is a translation from the Christian Standard Bible. I reckon they nail it with this. They said, Jesus says in his usual gentle way, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? Why? For the mouth speaks the overflow of the heart. If you want to know someone's heart, you just listen to what comes out of their mouth. Which makes me feel a little awkward sometimes. Um, it is interesting the way that people speak to each other or, say on so- or write to each other on, a- on social media. Uh, as soon as you kind of think, oh, I can say whatever I think and there's no consequences, what's really inside just gushes out. Now, when you're aware of... Here's, here's the dilemma. Isaiah's aware of the holy, holy, holiness of God and aware of his own evil. How do you live in the presence of that God? Well, see verse 6. Here's the kindness of God to him. Then one of the seraphim flew uh, to me with a... Oh, sorry, I'll read it again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Do you notice that, that uh, right at the end of verse 7, the word atonement or atoned for, uh, the Hebrew word kippur. Uh, have you heard of Yom Kippur? Okay, the day of anyone? I, I think there's a few screensavers going on. I'm going to ask again. Um, Anyone heard of Yom Kippur? Oh, good work. All right. Okay. Uh, the Day of Atonement. In fact, today, uh, this year, uh, the Day of Atonement will be celebrated by the Jewish communities in Sydney on um, October 4 and 5. So, you know, in a couple of months. What does it mean? In the Day of Atonement, they won't be celebrating it the same way. There won't be the animal sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter 6, God set up this, this special day each year when... Um, there would be two goats, one sacrificed and one made literally into the scapegoat and these sacrifices would be about a way of paying for the sins of the people. And you notice it's a coal that's taken from the altar. What's an altar? An altar is where a sacrifice is made. That's why you don't have altars in churches anymore because there's been one last true sacrifice that's done. You have a table where you celebrate the Lord's Supper but you don't have an altar. But here, um, it's t- the, the coal's taken from the altar, touches his lips, and, and if you like, the atonement. It's about paying the price of forgiveness. Of course, all the animals that died only pointed to the one sacrifice that really worked, or that really mattered, but we'll come back to that in a minute. All right, so God says, because of the atonement, you can be forgiven, and then he's sent on a mission. See verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Interesting, he, he, because I think it's the idea of gratitude because of forgiveness that he's ready to serve. But he's sent on a strange mission, a mission that, that's bound to fail. You see verse 9, 9 and 10. Um, he said, or God says to him, Go tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now how do you go understanding that? 
He's saying, go and tell them all these things, but they're not going to turn around, they're not going to hear, they're not going to get it. I'll tell you what I think. Well, you see what you think about what I think. God's patience has finally run out with these people. God is patient, but not endlessly so. Patience that never ends is just weakness. But God... God, God's decided he's going to punish the nation. And he has warned them again and again and again and again. In the end, it was centuries that he was warning them, prophet after prophet, warning after warning. And he's saying, you've ignored me, you've ignored me, you've ignored me. And now he's decided that he'll actually reinforce that deliberate ignoring. So if you have a look, what's he say? He's saying, in verse 9, he said to the people, be ever hearing, which is about like the external thing, right? Yeah, 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 the noise is there, but never understanding the, the internal thing won't happen. Or be ever seeing, yeah, your eyes, but never perceiving the internal thing. What's he saying? Yeah, yeah, the message will be there, but now it will just um, bounce off. That's what I think he's saying about the pe- for the people of Judah or Jerusalem. And what's the Bible teach? Well, God's not kind of passive, standing back, saying, oh, oh I hope they, I just keep asking, I hope they, they, uh, they respond. And then, no, the warning is this, that, that for people who are hard-hearted long enough, God's patience runs out, it does eventually, and God may reinforce that ignoring. Uh, if you've read the story of the Exodus, you know, when... Um, uh, Moses comes and says, let the people go and, and the plagues start. What, is, what does Moses tell us? Well, Pharaoh hardened his heart, refused to listen to God. God's punishment on that is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God reinforced that hard heart. What's, what's interesting, I think, I can't think of a New Testament, sorry, I can't think of a part of the Old Testament that's used more often than this in the New Testament. It's used five times. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the book of Acts all quote Isaiah chapter 6 and these words. All in the context about people not, not believing or, or continuing to ignore God. Um, Vicky read for us um, Mark chapter 4. Let me, let me show you. Um, you know, Jesus just told the parable about the sower. The sower goes out, throws the seed out. Some lands on the path. Some lands um, among the thorn. Sorry, in the shallow soil. Some lands on the thorns. Some lands on good soil. And I'll tell you what happened. The crowds that are listening thought, "Hmm, an interesting story. Um, we're going to get a free lunch here um, and get healed." And that was a good day. And they went home. But what are we told? Four verse ten. When he was alone, the twelve and others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Now, let me see if I 
See if you agree with how I, how I read this. Okay. If you read the Gospels carefully, as Jesus, forgive the, as Jesus goes public and begins to preach, what does he get? Pretty much nothing but pushback. The religious leaders push back on him. He goes and preaches in his own hometown and what? They try to kill him. It's not just death threats, it's put into action. They try to kill him. The crowds turn up and what do the crowds want? Well, the crowds want a free lunch or to get healed. And so what he gets is pushback and unbelief. And so in the end, I think what Mark and Matthew, Mark and Luke all show that after all of that, Jesus then moves to the point of parables and he said, why does he talk to the outsiders in parables? He actually reinforces that ignoring or, or unbelief. And that's a hard message, isn't it? Saying it, you, you say no long enough, God will reinforce that. But 4 verse 10 says, see, if you made a bit of an effort, if you actually wanted to know... So 4 verse 10 says, When he was alone, the twelve and others around him asked him about the parables. If you went and asked him and made the effort, wanted to know, he'd explain it to you. Now that's for the crowds in Jesus' day. What about us? What difference does it make? Uh, lots, of, lots of difference for us. First of all, you've got Jesus' explanation. We, we can read in, Mark, in, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus explains what the parable's about. And why, okay, that's a great positive. Um, the Spirit of God now will give you understanding if you, if you ask God for that. So lots, lots of positive. But here's the principle. Say no to God long enough and God's patience does run out. And God, and God may reinforce that ignoring. Because I tell you, every time you say no to the offer of forgiveness, there's a little more callous on the heart gets a little harder to hear. All right, how long will that be for? Well, God's patience is running out and he's going to destroy the nation. You see verse 11. Then I said, how, um, for how long, Lord? He answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravished, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. What's it talking about? Well, about 130 years later, and God is God's very patient, but 130 years later, the Babylonians invaded um, Jerusalem and over three different campaigns, they destroyed the city, they took a huge percentage of the population, just took them into captivity and took them to Babylon. Um, you can read about the... Here's a painting done by this man in 1896. But you see the idea of the, the um, captives being taken out of Jerusalem and Jerusalem on fire. Uh, you can read about the history of that in, in the book of Two Kings and what happened. Uh, can anyone think of anyone who was taken in that captivity and uh, went and had to live in Babylon? Daniel? Yeah, if you want to read about what happened after that, it's Daniel and his friends and how they survived in, in Babylon. And what's the, what's the point here? 
God warned them again and again and again and again and again um, through Isaiah and Jeremiah, but they're too smart, too sophisticated, too clever uh, to listen. But there is hope. See, one, the last verse, the seed that grows, says, but as a terebinth, which is a tree in the, that grew in the Middle East, and the oak the tree, leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Saying God's going to, yep, God's going to cut the tree down, but there will be hope. It will, there'll be a shoot that grows. Um, four or five times in Isaiah talks about God cutting down the, the, the tree of the nation, but then he talks about, well, I'll show you what he says in, in chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Um, that, that, several times in Isaiah, what's the idea? Well, Jesse had a very famous son called David, yeah? And David is the anointed king, and another way of saying that is the Messiah. And notice it doesn't say the stump of David will regrow. It's the stump of Jesse, a new shoot, the idea of a new David, a new Messiah, a new king of kings will come. And, of course, pointing to Jesus. All right, we'll pull a few quick threads together. Um, I, I don't know you all. It's great to be here. Have I get to know some of you over lunch? If you're not, I'll just say it. It's great you're here. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, don't keep saying no. Because this passage warns us, Jesus warns us, eventually God's patience runs out. And the irony is the way that that patience may ultimately run out is not you get hit by a bus. I guess that's possible. It may not be that way. It may be that you just stop hearing the message because God stops opening hearts. Now, the glory of God today, um, I need, maybe you need, a bigger, bigger vision of God. Because I, I know anxiety and worry and, and concern about other people and what they'll say or do or the the bigger my vision of God, the more likely those things are to shrink down to their proper size. So a big vision of God. Where do you get a vision of the glory of God? Here's something I've understood this week. When Isaiah has a vision and hears the seraphim um, call, what do they say? The whole earth is full of his glory, pointing to what? Creation. Say the stars and the sunrise and the baby and the, well, the, the, the magnificence of God's glory in creation. But here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, when the New Testament writers look to the glory of God, they don't go to creation. Still there, yep, but they don't go to creation. They go to a much stranger place. I'll show you in John's Gospel. In John chapter 12, what Jesus is talking about, now has come the time... When he has to go to the cross. He's come to the time when he knows he's going to die on the cross. And he says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man, what? To be glorified. Meaning to go to the cross. And then later he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So here's what the New Testament is saying. If you want to see the glory of God, sure, you'll see it in the stars and sunrise and new babies. And yep, that's great. But even more clearly, you'll see it at the cross of Jesus. Why? Because it's at the cross you see the holy, holy, holy God who can't abide sin and yet at the same time is loving enough to pay that penalty to make atonement so that we can be forgiven. If you want to see the glory of God, you look to the cross and see the love of God, the glory of God in action. Pray with me. Our Father, please give us eyes to see and to understand your glory in creation and more especially your glory in the cross of Jesus. We ask, please, that we might live lives of confidence and joy and gratitude and lives that point to his greatness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.